0: or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks,
1: dating back to 1996. Welcome back. Um, so it's our custom to go around and say our names, um, and I um, urge you to take take it easy. Think Golden Gate Park instead of Union at Rush right? Hour. <laughs> just take a beat. So, we, so your name can register. My name is Cass. Name I'm Brad. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm Brad. I'm David. I'm Jason. My name is Michael. My name is Rich. John. <coughs> My name is Jim. My name is Jim. <coughs> Philip. My name is Jerry. My name is Ray. David. I'm Ed. I'm Larry. I'm Chisquins. I'm Vince. Dennis. Jack. My name is Ricardo. My name is Matthew. My name is Stephanie. I am Samuel. <laughs> My name is John. I'm Hal. My name is Alzac. I'm Gil. My name is Bob. <coughs> My name is Harley. <coughs> Great. My name is Pamela. Okay. <laughs> <It's> Pamela Weiss, <laughs> who is our um, a longtime friend of the fellowship. I, I, I discovered on the website that we have talks going back, recorded talks going back to two thousand and six. Does that sound about right? Yes. So Pamela um, <clears throat> has practiced Zen and in and the, in, uh, Theravada traditions of Buddhism for over thirty years. Um, She's had Zen monastic training um, and completed teacher training with Jack Winfell at Spirit Rock. She leads a Wednesday evening sitting group at SF Insight at the Unitarian Church, teaches classes, workshops and retreats internationally, and um, is an executive coach and founder of Appropriate Response, a company dedicated to bringing the principles and practices of buddhism into the world less. so welcome pamela
0: thank you it's always so funny to hear yourself <laughs> yeah. oh who's that <laughs> she sounds really impressive <laughs> yeah. uh, it's always nice <clears throat> for me to be here nice to see some familiar faces <laughs> It may sound odd, but I'm as curious to find out what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, I have been um, deep in a process of writing. So I've been quite immersed in a variety of topics that are kind of a blend of Buddhist teaching, stories from the life of the Buddha, <clears throat> memoir, etc. So um, there are a few of the themes from that that I'm hoping to bring forward, weave, share, and engage in some conversation and dialogue with all of you. And I think if we start at the beginning, there's a question about why we practice. What brings us to this? And as I share a bit about my own experience and a little bit from the life of the Buddha, just to invite you to really reflect for yourself. What is it that um, brings you today? What is it that's brought you? uh, What are the, the technical Buddhist terms? What are the causes and conditions that have come together to have you here this morning and to have you interested, engaged, to whatever degree it may be true for you in Buddhist teachings, practices, principles. So I was remembering in my own life, I came to Buddhist teaching in my 20s, and uh, I started in the Zen tradition, and I lived at San Francisco Zen Center at the city center of Green Gulch Farm, Tassahara for a period of about five years. And maybe because I was young, I'm not sure, but people would ask me a lot, why are you doing this? And um, I I came up with kind of a pith response, which was, why are you doing this? I would say, uh, what brought you to do this? I would say, searching and suffering. Mm And uh, as I was reflecting on that today, it seems to me that those two pieces reflect uh, perhaps what may be true for many of us. That on one side there is just, you know, the ouch of life. And sometimes that ouch comes in a very dramatic way, right? Perhaps there is a, a loss, a diagnosis, a death, a something that has us go, oh. And this is true for me. I was uh, diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was 10 years old. So for a long time, you know what we call in Buddhist teaching, old age sickness and death was very close. uh, At a age that was much too young for that to be true, but it was. And um, you know in the myth of the life of the Buddha it's said that he was a, the prince of the Shakya clan. And um, he lived a very privileged life and at some point encountered an old man, a sick man, and a corpse. And this kind of mythic uh, archetypal way of describing the encounter that many of us have with old age, sickness, and death uh, woke him up. So that's <clears throat> one side the side of dukkha, the side of the truth that there is suffering, difficulty, dis-ease in human life. And no matter how much we try to avoid or get around it, it's here. And the the more and the more that we face it directly, that we look at it straight up, which doesn't mean you have to go around and find it. It's already here. But the less time we spend doing this, you know, trying to ignore or get away from or build walls around, um, the more doors and windows can begin to open and we can step in, step through into the real fabric of our lives. So suffering is one side. But there's also, in my pith description, this piece about searching. And I think that searching has more to do with kind of a deep yearning that is in all of us, I think, for a greater sense of meaning, of purpose, of sort of, why am I here? It may be for some of you, as was true for me as well, that you may have had the experience of getting what you thought you really wanted and then being like, really?
1: <coughs>
0: there's a there's a second story in the life of the Buddha that's less well known but uh, apparently the young prince was a bit of a party animal and um, he there were these wild parties that would go on in his house, in his palace and uh, one story goes that he um, after a night of Drinking and dancing and music and so on. Uh, He woke up in the middle of the night and he saw this room full of people who had just hours earlier looked beautiful in their costumes and jewelry and uh, makeup, you know. And he saw them now sort of strewn around the floor, snoring and drooling Mm -hmm. with their. You know, costumes askew, and they're all you know. And he had an experience of um, seeing through the veil, if you will, of what's supposed to be happy-making, and realizing it said uh, that there was a seed of what's called in Buddhist teaching nibbida. It's not often talked about because. It's not that an encouraging way to invite people in, but that one translation of Niveda is disgust. I think a better translation is something like disenchantment. And probably we've all had, if not one if not many times, at least once, an experience of disenchantment. We get the gold ring and then it drops. You know, it shatters. <laughs> Remember, um, When I got married, I had the experience, I was pretty young also, and I had the experience some months, or maybe even weeks, but soon after being married, of um, going to a friend and saying, in quite a lot of distress, I thought getting married would make me happy. (laughs) And I really did. I was that naive, right? (laughs) And um, fortunately, I didn't believe that so fully that I did what many of us do, which is, oh, there must be something wrong with this one. I'll go get a new one. No, 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 and I recognized was, no, this is how it is. Right. That the things out there that we reach for don't offer lasting happiness. That's not where it's found, which turns us towards sort of the second piece of the, what I want to speak about, which is, uh, we might say, true happiness. So we have these two terms, nibida, which is a kind of disenchantment, and nibbana, or nirvana, or waking up, enlightenment, awakening. It's a little bit taboo to even talk about it. But I think that whether we talk about it or not, many, many of us carry some kind of, often not very well thought through, uh, idea, idealization, fantasy about what it means to wake up. So, I'm not claiming to know, but I thought it would be interesting to share some of what it says in various teachings and as I speak and tell some of these stories again, to listen for what might feel true or resonant for you. Awakening is really, in many ways, the premise and the promise of the Buddhist path. And so it's a bit odd in a way that we kind of don't talk about it too much. And in, you know, what does it mean in? San Francisco in 2018 in a world in which we have the boom of, you know, kind of secularized mindfulness practice. We have uh, meditation practice and Buddhist teaching infused with you know, neuroscience. Um, all of which has done enormous amount to make the benefits of a practice much more accessible, much more widely available to many many people um, and also runs the risk of kind of chopping off the potential of the practice of the knees and so this is today I'm speaking in this in a bit, in, about this as a bit of a corrective right? mm-hmm. so I think it is maybe useful to start with um, uh, what awakening is not so and this is a way of kind of pulling forward our ideas that we may be carrying overtly or covertly consciously or unconsciously and I think that for many of us we imagine that waking up is somehow going to create I don't know what like a 24 7 Mm -hmm. happy place Mm -hmm. where everything is just good I don't think so Fundamental to Buddhist psychology, Buddhist understanding of who we are and how the mind works and how life itself is, is this very simple but potent way of understanding that every moment of our experience is colored, you might say, by what's called a Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A, which means a feeling tone. And there are just three. (laughs) We keep it simple. There's pleasant, there's unpleasant, and there's neutral. So I think neutral means neither pleasant or unpleasant. Neutral, I think, kind of flies off the radar for most of us, meaning we don't notice neutral experience. We've, or we call it boring. That was boring. That means maybe it was Neutral. Um, But mostly we just don't notice. We do notice, however, pleasant and unpleasant, don't we? And our noticing is not passive. There is a habitual kind of reactivity that happens for us, in us, as we are bombarded moment by moment by pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. So the habit is pleasant experience. It could be an external experience, a beautiful sight, a sound, a smell. I recently got a little dog and I've been walking around in Golden Gate Park in the mornings and the evenings and it's stunning, glorious, beautiful sight, sound, smell, so pleasant. It can also be internal. You may have a pleasant sensation a pleasant thought, a pleasant fantasy, like that. And all of those things, pleasant, like, want, grasp, that's kind of how it goes. (laughs) Pleasant, like, want, grasp, as soon as we get to grasp it's not pleasant anymore, (laughs) it's not. We've actually lost contact in a way with the direct experience, but that's that's habitually how it goes kind of simple, and you can check this out in your own experience, right? More. It can be gross, you know? Like one chocolate chip cookie isn't enough. Sixteen. Now it's not pleasant anymore, right? But it it can also be very subtle. You can begin to notice how you think you're in charge, but actually the psychophysical system that you are is constantly tuning itself toward looking for pleasant experience. And the flip side, which is avoiding unpleasant, right? So the other main flavor of experience is unpleasant, unpleasant, don't like, don't want, get away. So wanting, avoiding, wanting, rejecting, denying, wanting, grasping. So. If you see this as me, seated, going, want, get away, want, get away, we think, most of us, our fundamental delusion, in a way, as human beings, is that we think if we just get all of the good stuff, and we get rid of all of the bad, meaning unpleasant stuff, then we'll be happy. But that's not how it works. Because moment by moment there will be pleasant and unpleasant. And if we follow that strategy to its end <laughs> and you you know this in your own experience, right? I know this in my own experience. You don't get happy, you get tired. Right? <laughs> like exhausted. Right? Because what are we doing? We're going rr, rr, rr. There's a there's a a gross and sometimes if it's not even gross it's a subtle reverberation want, don't want, want, don't want grass, push away, grass, push away and then we wonder why am I so worn out right. so that's not it <laughs> I have an old colleague who used to call it we all have in our mind this idea of the island where it all works out And you may have that, as I did as a young woman, as if I get married, it will all work out. You may have it as, if I have the right partner, if I have the right job, if I have the right house, if I have the right shoes, whatever it is, if I have the right haircut, then it all works out. And if you don't have it, then you can keep imagining you will get it. If you get it, then you can have the disenchantment of, I got what I wanted, and It's great, but it's still not. There's not a sense of true or lasting happiness. Because pleasant and unpleasant doesn't last. That's part of the nature of our experience. It's coming and going all the time, which is why we get so tired. There's not a, you know. And many of us imagine that if we are awake if we get enlightened if we practice meditation that somehow this is one of the other fantasies we'll just get to flip that switch and be <laughs> on cruise control yeah. Yeah, through life. Nothing's bothering me anymore. It's actually not a great thing to strive for. Right? That we want. That's not what waking up means. Waking up means actually being able to be here for all of it, not to be kind of numbed out and some of us have a fantasy also that, I don't know, I've had on this for a long time that if I just, then there'll be some kind of like thunderbolt experience, right and everything will be different and there are stories of people who wake up in that way and many of them lose their minds either uh, for a short period of time or a long period of time after because a waking up experiences is, is a shift in perspective. It's a re, radical reorientation. And if that happens in a thunderbolt kind of way, it actually can be very disorienting and unsettling. And again, you all probably have in your own lives experiences of being disoriented, unsettled, Having things turned upside down, and it's usually not pleasant. Sometimes it's really good, right? It ends up having the cards shuffled, as it were. You know, the deck thrown up in the air and landing can be really good, but we don't like it. So there is some complexity here with this. So. Um, Actually, let me read you something. I, I um, came to me this morning while I was walking in the park. This is sort of the positive side of what we might think of as what we are seeking in our practice, and uh, it's a quote from Annie Dillard, who is one of my favorite voices as a writer. And she—I'm going to adapt what she says because her she opens it that's by saying, "Why do we read if not?" And I'm going to change the language to say, Why do we practice? You'll get the same idea. Why do we practice if not in hope of beauty laid bare, life heightened, and its deepest mystery probed? Why do we practice if not in hope? that we will magnify and dramatize our days, will illuminate and inspire us, aspire ourselves with wisdom, courage, and the possibility of meaningfulness. And this will press upon our minds the deepest mysteries so we might feel again majesty and power. What do we ever know that is higher than that power which from time to time seizes our lives and reveals us startlingly to ourselves as creatures set down here, bewildered. Mm -hmm. Why does death catch us so by surprise and why love? We still and always want waking. We still and always want waking a beautiful pointing us to a sense of what's possible for us as human beings to have our life itself laid bare to open ourselves to beauty to uh, illumination to mystery so I'll say a little bit There, there are many different ways in which this premise and promise of awakening is talked about in the teachings. So one really simple way it's talked about is that what waking up looks like is the absence of what are called the three poisons, greed, hatred and delusion. So we might say in relation to what I was saying before about wanting and not wanting that that reverb goes away. That there's a stilling. It doesn't mean we don't want and not want. What it means is that we're not driven around by it. That we can feel the wanting come up. We can feel the not wanting come up. But we don't have to be compelled to act based on that. There's a beautiful um, uh, old Chinese poem called the Xin Xin Ming. And uh, the translation of it is something like the mind or heart of great faith. And some of you may know the opening line originally of this poem was translated as the great way, the path, the practice, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Wanting and not wanting, wanting and not those are our preferences, right? But there's a wonderful retranslation that came some years later. So the same guy who translated it the first time took a second pass at it. And the second time, he retranslated it to read the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. In other words, your preferences aren't going to go away. Pleasant and unpleasant experiences is not going to go away. The question is, are you caught in it? Is it like flypaper or Velcro? Or can you maintain a sense of freedom right in the middle of that? And go, yeah, wanting, feel that. Yeah, not wanting, feel that. To actually have it rather than have it have you. Very different experience. One of the other ways that uh, awakening is described is so, sort of one side is the absence of these greed, hate, delusion, the absence of our attachments to our wanting and not wanting. One of the simple, really beautiful ways that it's talked about is uh, seeing things as they are, the sort of clear, simple seeing or as uh, the Zen master Suzuki Roshi, who founded the San Francisco Zen Center where I practiced, used to say, it's seeing things as it is. Sort of showing that when those veils are lifted, when we are not caught in the whole web of our assumptions and ideas and beliefs, that there is a kind of wholeness that comes that there's a falling away of the felt sense of me over here and you over there, and it's us. We're in it together, seeing things as it is. And what do we see? In the Theravada tradition, there's, we have the three poisons, greed, hate, delusion. All good things in Buddhism come in threes. <laughs> and we also have what are called the three characteristics, which are uh, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. So we see these characteristics, these kind of universal uh, marks of human life, which include suffering, that's a dukkha, which we've talked about already. It includes anicca, which is, we see impermanence. We see impermanence all the time, but we usually go like this, or we imagine we can lock it down somehow. We don't We see it, we know it, maybe cognitively, but we don't actually let ourselves feel it. Because if we feel it, we have to feel loss. But if we feel it, we also get to feel the aliveness and beauty of what's here. Because a freeze-framed life is a dead life. I often use the metaphor of um, ice cubes and a river. And uh, what we do in our life, habitually, is turn this beautiful rushing river, we freeze frame it, we pin ourselves into these little this little ice cube tray, and we go, this is mine, this is my cube. And then at some point we realize, you know, it's kind of cold in here. And... <laughs> And we, maybe we paint the walls and we put in a skylight and we get some new carpets and we think it's still cold in here because you can't really dress it up. The only way to get out of the ice cube tray is to melt. And there's a beautiful term in the Theravada tradition of, uh, it's called stream entry. It's understood as kind of the first layer of uh, understanding are waking up and I always think it's not really that we enter the stream which is entering the stream in a way you could understand as entering the lineage of the many many people who've woken up before you, you enter that you exchange your karmic lineage which we all have, our family, what we were born into for a dharmic lineage for a lineage of awakened beings with whom we are now communing Right? So that could be an understanding of what it means to enter the stream. But I also think more viscerally, it's like no, we become the stream. right? We unfreeze frame ourselves so that we become more fluid, more alive, right. more vital. or freed up in this way. I have many more things to say, but I think There's one. There's a beautiful opening line from a guy named Ben Okri, who's a, uh, I think Nigerian writer, and uh, he wrote a book called *The Hungry Road*, and the opening line of the book goes something like this. He said, in the beginning, there was a river. And then the river was paved over and became a road. But because the road was really a river, it was always hungry. So when we box ourselves in to our freeze-framed ideas of life instead of just being in it, being attentive, awake, attending to the fluid flow of pleasant and unpleasant experience that is all around us and is us, moment by moment, we feel hunger. We feel the suffering of the ouch part of life, and we feel a sense of wanting something right <laughs> and we spend so much time looking to fill that wanting in all the wrong places as the buddha did it's part of the deal we have to we have to look and look and look and mostly not find not find not find to finally decide to say i'm going to go on sunday morning to GBF and meditate. Mm -hmm. And then we can turn our meditation into another thing we're going to get. That's what uh, Chögyam Chögyam called spiritual materialism. We can turn it into another getting. But ultimately we're not going to get anything. It is, as in the metaphor of melting, it's all about letting go. And it's not like you have to let go of your house and your Friends and your money. No, it's letting go at a much more fundamental level. It's letting go so that we can be here (coughs) for this moment, this moment, and this moment. So the impact as we practice (coughs) is that we are less (coughs) caught by that kind of fundamental basic reactivity. And we can rest more and more in this completely mysterious, in some ways unnameable, unspeakable awareness. And the beauty of that, that is who we really are. And as our sense of identity begins to shift from the content of what we're aware of to the awareness itself, there's a deep relaxation and a deep sense of contentment and true happiness that isn't dependent on the stuff floating through, right? You use traditional images, the sky is like awareness, and clouds are passing through the sky. So usually we're identified with the clouds. It's like, this cloud is a gray cloud, and I don't like it. And then this cloud is a beautiful, fluffy cloud, and I do like it. But little by little we learn to just begin to appreciate the sky. And there's still going to be clouds. There's still going to be rain and fog, if you're in San Francisco. (laughs) Um, but it's okay. It's okay to have experience that you like and don't like, which doesn't mean you're going to be passive, but it means that you have a place to lean back into from which you can begin to respond in a more skillful way rather than being in this kind of perpetual state of reactivity. And the ultimate upshot of all of this is not <laughs> its not weird. It's just a sense of greater wholeness that we don't have to be trying to get and get away from. We can include it all. We can receive all of ourselves, all of each other. And from that place of inclusivity and equanimity and spaciousness, we can also have the strength and the courage to stand up and say no when standing up and saying no is the appropriate response. So it doesn't mean we just roll over, right? But where we say no from is not just reverb, right? It comes from a deep sense of being grounded in what matters and what, what we care about. So I'm going to pause here and uh, invite you to say, ask, complain, anything you want to uh, add. Yes, please. For my benefit, you'll say your name again.
1: My name is Cass. Yeah. Um, So the Buddha had this kind of moment of illumination, Hardy Atomero kind of (laughs) realized there was something more to life. And and so it was like he had an aha moment. And so it's... In practice, it feels like I'm striving for that kind of aha moment to acquire that aha moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to reconcile that with melting and letting go and yeah. So, is there kind of a little um, <coughs> enlightenment that happens? <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, so just yeah. to, to, it's a great question, and I, I think yeah. that um, the Buddha had many aha moments. Wow. He didn't have one. And so, um, aha, aha. So he had an aha moment that was like, oh my goodness, this is not where happiness lies. That was, that was an aha moment that led him on the path. right? That wasn't actually a moment of awakening. It's said that in the story of the Buddha, there are what's called three watches of the night. And the Buddha, this is, a, I think, a great way, it was very helpful to me to disabuse myself of the idea of this kind of thunderbolt aha moment. And the three watches of the night suggest that even for the Buddha, the waking up process was a process. It's not just one thing that happens. So in the first watch of the night, he, he sees himself over many, many lifetimes. You can believe in many lifetimes or not. But he sees the impact of karma. He sees that everything that he thinks and says and does has an impact. sees that clearly which I think is ironic in a way because we have this idea in our modern culture that karma is some kind of predestination. Mm -hmm. It's actually exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. Karma means action and the Buddha seeing as he's becoming the Buddha, seeing into the truth of his own karma was really a way of his taking responsibility for his own agency. For all of us to realize, oh, I impact what I think, what I say, what I do. It's not going to come from outside. It's going to come from my own thinking and feeling and saying and behaving. That's, a, that's an initial insight. Then he goes on to see the second watch of the night. He sees that this is true for everyone. This is a beautiful way of understanding that we may have some initial waking up or insight. And then the second part of the insight for him is really in a way the opening of compassion. Mm -hmm. He begins to feel a sense of, oh, it's not just me having my little awakening, but like, oh, everybody's suffering. Everybody like that. (coughs) So his heart opens. And the final, the third watch of the night, is uh, seeing into what's called dependent origination. So he actually sees how it is that suffering happens, and he begins to see how it is that suffering can unhappen. And the the, the turning point of that wheel of suffering and unsuffering is what I was talking about earlier, which is it hinges on Vedana, It hinges on starting to see how it is that we get impacted by pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and then reactively grasp and grab. And if we can start to pay attention there and not judge ourselves for it, but understand this is how it works, and then see what it's like to want without acting, to see what it's like to not want, like you have a pain in your knee, What is it like even for 10 seconds to just hang out with it instead of reflexively trying to get away? It's an example, right? And as we begin to see the truth of that and embody it in our own life, it's not that we become sort of masochistic and want to be in pain or that we deny ourselves pleasure, but we aren't run around by those in the same way that we were. We find... Uh, a, f- a sense of freedom right in the middle mm-hmm. of all of that. So I don't know if that is helpful, <laughs> yeah, it's but powerful. it's quite. I have a teacher who once said it shouldn't be called awakening, it should be called awakenings. Mm-hmm. And that's a nice yes. way to hold it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Yeah.
1: Hi, Jason. Jason. I find this. Uh, Awakenings idea um, uh, parallel to what Joseph Campbell says about a life that actually that the call to adventure happens continuously yes yes. and if you actually respond to that then your life will always be that's right you know awakened or adventurous yeah
0: yeah I mean that I've I've worked a lot with Joseph Campbell's map of the hero's journey which I simplified and retitled the human journey um, and the thing that I like about it is it's a circle, right, as you're saying. You don't have one call, and then it's a straight line until you get there. You have a call, and then you go around this whole cycle, and then guess what? You go right back, and you go around and around. But as someone pointed out to me recently, it's actually it's more like a spiral, right? There's a deepening there because we learn stuff as we go. So there's insight, there's maturing, there's freeing up as we go round and round. But if we understand that we're going round and round, then we can let go to a certain extent of that (coughs) habitual belief we we carry so inherently that there's some there there. There's no there there. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that waking up doesn't happen, that maturing doesn't happen, that freeing up doesn't happen. It does. It's just not a once and done. Which is a good thing. It means you get to keep being alive with the possibility of more and more and more freedom. So you have a little bit, good. There's a little more right around the corner. (laughs) And when you get around the corner, there's a little more. This should be good news, but because we're so wired... I think in the the flip side of what you're describing, to think there's something to get, then we end up feeling disappointed. It's kind of crazy, when actually we should be delighted that there's possibility to keep waking up, right? To keep feeling more free, right? Like that. And it's good because some of you may have noticed that as we get older, things don't get easier. (laughs) So. Mm-hmm. What may have felt like a semblance of freedom at a certain age or in a certain body, uh, we might need more of that <laughs> as things get a little bit more, you know, creaky and cranky, right? Yeah, thank you.
1: I'm just having another thought about the Please. idea of think like, um, heroes and you know, often their stories. Yes, they achieve, but then later on, like we look at Jason, for instance, I mean, oh. he got <laughs> the golden fleece and all that, but then, you know, there's Medea, and... Uh, and so, I mean, the idea exactly. of attachment, I think, comes into, like, are you attached to only that one journey that what made you the hero? Right. That, that idea, or yep. are you willing to continuously shed for yeah, the next, for the next journey?
0: That's right. And keep, keep going. Yeah, I mean, I think the other piece that's built into the idea of a hero's journey is that it's somehow some kind of solo event and if we look at our own lives and we look at the life of the Buddha and we look at the, some of the other archetypes we never do it alone there's an enormous amount of support that we're receiving all the time and actually I think one of the deepest kinds of waking up we can have is to wake up to that mm-hmm. to recognize that we aren't some solo you know, hero soldier marching along trying to get somewhere That we are always in this web of connectivity. Because that's what we're waking up to. We're waking up to the the non-ice cube nature of who we are. We're waking up to the being, the river. But you're not the only river. Everybody is the river, right? So we're all water. We're all in this together. That's what starts to shift. That's the experience of feeling more whole and more connected mm-hmm. rather than more isolated, more separate, more locked in. That's what freedom feels like.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Oh, in the back.
1: I really enjoyed your teaching this morning. And, um, for some reason, there's a psychoanalyst, only gay, who's culmination of this work, keeps coming back to me, mm. he said um, neurosis is the absence of joy. Mm. And I've noticed mm. in the Dalai Lama's writings the last few years, joy is more and more present. Would you talk about it for a moment?
0: Neurosis is the absence of joy. Mm. Yeah, I mean I, I would say it's something like neurosis is when we're so caught in the um, mask, if you will, of me. We're so concerned about me. It's miserable. And the um, joy comes totally counterintuitively, in a sense, to those of us (laughs) sitting in the middle of the I need I, 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 I place. (laughs) comes with the letting go. It's the melting. It's, I mean, over and over again, you'll read in all different iterations of people talking about awakening, there's a letting go, there's a surrendering. There's not a getting. (laughs) It's not about what you get, it's about what is released, and it's in that release, in that opening, in that unfreezing, that's joy. Because when we're open in that way, we actually can be receptive to, as Annie Dillard said, sort of the beauty and mystery of life itself. It doesn't mean it doesn't suck a lot of the time. (laughs) It doesn't mean there's not going to be unpleasant experience. There will. But it turns out we'll also be more skillful with that. I don't know how that works, but yeah. Thank you. I think we'll do even more.
1: Yeah. I'm Michael. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about the idea of Buddha nature, and, mm-hmm. that, and that we we are we we already are what we're seeking. Yes, and um, but that we somehow part of the experience of embodiment is that we have we have to go on this journey to figure that out that, mm-hmm. that we're already home mm-hmm. in some
0: regard. Well, one of the great things about Campbell's map of the journey is that the journey doesn't end with awakening. So there's a call, there's a departure, there's a struggle. I always find that very reassuring, that the struggle (laughs) is on the map. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong, it's on the map. Take note, right? The struggle, the awakening, that would seem like a good place to stop, right? No. Then there's the return. The return the return is a suggestion, as you're pointing to, that we're always coming home. You know, the awake, there is no there there. We're not going somewhere. We're coming here. And it's really part of the way that map is described, that it's like the word refuge. We take refuge in Buddha and Dharma and Sangha, another three, uh, the word refuge refuge means to fly back and it's pointing us to something very important which is that again we have this idea that we're going to get something we're going to go somewhere we're going to no it's here but we get to land back here in a way that is more fluid that isn't frozen that isn't right but it's always a coming home right Coming home in a more and more full way, in a more and more whole way, in a more and more uh, un- non separate from everything way. Yeah.
1: Please. I don't want it to end. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's not going to end. <laughs> I, I, yeah, lesson learned, lesson learned. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, okay, so, um, well, Uh, Pamela has a weekly sitting group at Unitarian Church, right? Wednesday nights, 7 to 9. Come anytime. And um, a website, uh, AppropriateResponse.com. Yep. And so, um, (coughs) do we have a host today? Yes, I'm your host today. Uh, There are refreshments out there. There's hot water for tea. When you're finished with your cup, just put it in the dishwasher. Uh, at 12.30, people gather at the front door to go to lunch. Anyone's welcome. Uh, there is a sign-up sheet if you want to be in the GBF directory. And, oh, Donna. Donna. Uh, mm-hmm. all coming around the Donna Wall, suggested donation is $10. Mm-hmm. Donna needs giving, so if you can't give that or can give more, give what you can. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other announcements? Okay, so we can. Who's the speaker next week? Oh, next week is Heather Sundberg, um, also a uh, longtime friend of the Sangha. She's um, completed the Spirit Box Insight Meditation t- Teacher Training. Um, she is a teacher for the Mountain Stream Meditation Center in the Sierra Foothills classes and, and that's it
0: We were it's, it's Heather and I were in teacher training together. Oh. Mm-hmm. Ah
1: yeah. okay can we yes. Did I did we talking about next next week there's going to be a meeting after next yeah I c I don't someone can speak on it knows more about it than I do. But there have been there have been announcements that next week after there's a for those who want to participate, I think there's a discussion about ways that the sound can be more involved, civically. I, again, I don't, I don't know the language. I think no, that's Tim, it, is that, good. Did I say it right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a continuation of yeah. a conversation that started months back about like civic engagement from the group, yeah. but I don't know what time. It's gonna probably that? be after the uh, probably 12:30. 12:30. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah, also, uh, the first Sunday of each month, we've been having chanting in right. a yeah. 10. Uh, anybody who wants comes. Yeah. Yeah, space, and that's no. we have, so. so we can gather in a circle for our presentation. Mm-hmm.
0: have to do something. Okay. okay. So taking a moment to feel your feet planted on the earth. Feeling the earth holding and supporting you. as we bring our morning of practice together in words and in silence to a close. We open our hearts and open our hands and generously offer any of the goodness, any insight, any benefit that may have come from our gathering together and sharing in the Dharma we offer it out to all beings in all directions by the power and truth of our practice together may all beings everywhere be free from suffering may all beings awaken and be free